a Pearson Harnish, but a huge third down conversion. You got the game on? Yep. On the move, down to the 24-yard line of St. Francis. Who's winning? He, he won't say the score. Laid up and waited for the pass. Short drop Come out on, of the gun. who's winning? Rifles towards the right corner, complete to Vander Cooey, who steps across the plane. Ah, say the damn score. You're listening to the original Say the Damn Score podcast, part of the Say the Damn Score podcast network. Here's your host, Logan Anderson. But before we get started with today's podcast, here's a short message from the Say the Damn Score marketing team. Hey, marketing team, get over here. I'm on my way. What's up? You need to tell our great listeners about the Critique Crew service. Oh, I'd be happy to. Say the Damn Score now offers a critique service. You send us 8 to 10 minutes of your work, and we have one of our nine expert broadcasters listen to your work and provide detailed written feedback of your strengths, weaknesses, and places you can improve. Many coaching and critique services are expensive, not ours. For just over 30 bucks, you can receive a professional critique of your work. Whether you're a young broadcaster coming up short in the job market or a veteran trying to reach the next level, for the price of a happy hour tab, you could be on your way to becoming a better broadcaster. Visit saythedamscore.com slash critique-crew or click on the Critique Crew link in the show notes. Now back to the show. Hey, production team, get back over here. Before we get started, I just wanted to have a quick production note. Sometimes when you do a show like this, you have to contact the people. However, you are able to do so, and this interview had to be done via a cell phone instead of Skype or some sort of better-sounding audio. And it's all audible, and it sounds pretty good for the most part, but there are moments where the audio quality sounds like a cell phone call. So just... Uh, so you're not surprised and know that's coming. That's the deal, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. Welcome back to the Say the Damn Score podcast. As you just heard the big voiced guy say, I'm Logan Anderson, and we are live from the Say the Damn Score studio, a.k.a. my spare bedroom, slash studio, slash wife's music room. So a uh, lot of stuff going on here on the podcast if you're not a a subscriber of the podcast or a regular listener. This is a podcast about sportscasting where I, a sportscaster, talk to other sportscasters about the business, about the life, about uh, the craft, and we have a good time with it, try to tell some fun stories at the same time. And right now, I am joined by the longtime voice of the Oklahoma State Cowboys, Dave Hunziker. And Dave, first of all, just thanks so much for taking time to come on the show. Oh, absolutely. My pleasure. And, you know, you're talking about the room you use. Our closet with our clothes doubles as my recording studio. So, you know, whatever it takes, I, 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 could, absolutely, I could absolutely care less. So whatever things can, however things get done, I don't care. So I'm with you. How do you, do you have to make any adjustments to your closet to make it work, work right uh, to record in? Truthfully, the most important thing is get down by the sweaters and absorb sound. And I'm not joking. You can actually do that, especially if you're in a house that has a lot of, you know, uh, non-carpeted floors. So if you get if you get really up by the coats and sweaters, it absorbs the sound. If you ever listen to Oklahoma State uh, broadcast, we've ever had a chance to listen to our broadcast. Any commercials I've recorded for our network were recorded in that closet. So if you think it sounds okay, then 
there's all kinds of ways to get things done. It's it's some trial and error, but yeah, I mean, <laughs> truthfully, yeah, get down there by the thick stuff and then let it fly. Do you think that your clients know that your uh, commercials are recorded in a closet? <laughs> some of them do, actually. In fact, the ones that I work most closely with actually know that. I don't think they care as long as it sounds good. And the key thing is, and I say this with all seriousness, uh, I, I do invest in a pretty high-end mic. Uh, the mic I use for production and for interviews is a, is a, you know, it is not a studio microphone per se. It is a, it is a portable microphone, if you will, but it's very high-end. And so that, that helps. Uh, you know, I was having issues using, uh, you know, on the ranch flash recorder and trying to use an ordinary you know, BMD 635 and in that really quiet environment, I was getting a ton of noise and I worked on it for about a year, tried to figure out what the deal was and talking to the Learfield engineers, we couldn't figure anything out. I finally found a website that really dove into the uh, PMD uh, 661, I believe is the model number and, you know, the highs and lows of it and the negatives and positives. And then that's when I invested in a high-end studio mic and now it just sounds awesome. So yeah, I think you can get away with some things. Uh, you know, it's all trial and error, but I think one thing is going to do things out of your home, invest in a good mic. And you'll find even if you take care of it and use it in the field, your game audio that you use on the air will sound a lot better because you can tell a difference between what's recorded on my mic and what we do on some other microphones because it's just a lot richer sounding when you've got a higher end mic. Certainly, and I did invest in a mic, probably not quite as high-end as yours, but it gets the job done. You are on your bye week right now covering Oklahoma State football. What do you do on your bye week? Number one, whatever my wife tells me I need to do that I haven't done for a month, so that comes into play a little bit, uh, and that's uh, half-joking and half-serious. It's it, I kind of reflect on the entire year. I'll do some research on some things that maybe during a game week that I might not ordinarily have time to research. Trends, looking back at other seasons, trying to come up with some comparisons that may be relevant. So I'll definitely do that. Uh, I'll try to stockpile a couple of interviews at practice this week to have for those crazy weeks in November when we're doing both football and basketball, some of our future-oriented pieces. I'll try to grab a couple of those now uh, while it's an off week and everybody's in a little bit more of a relaxed mode. So I'll do that. And you know, I'll go ahead and get a little bit of a head start from our standpoint uh, late in the week on next week's Baylor game. And then I will take some decompressed time for sure. Uh, I will make some time for myself and do some things that I, I like to do for hobbies and just to kind of get away and and so, you know, I, I think it's important during that off week to, to clear your mind just a little bit. You know, I'm still working, still doing some things, but it's also a good time to, to sort of just recharge the mind a little bit. Uh, because I think you, 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 if you don't watch it, you can really start grinding. This has to be fun. And the audience has to, you know, they have to be right there with you enjoying the broadcast. And that only happens if you enjoy what you do as an announcer. So it's a lot of things. There's certainly some work being done, some advanced work. Uh, some some extra prep that I might not ordinarily be able to do, uh, and then honestly, uh, chance to kind of you know kick back and, and slow down a little bit because once we get to the end of October and you have football and basketball going on at the same time, uh, then you, you then it's crazy, and then November is just nuts. I mean, my family says goodbye to me, and 
we'll see after Thanksgiving, and that's really how it works. With that in mind, that crossover season, I get you talked about balancing your kind of work and family life during that time and how difficult it is. Do you feel like you almost have to make up for it when there's a bye week for uh, when when you have that bye week for when times get crazy? Yeah, especially, you know, my, my children are older now. I have a junior at Oklahoma State and a senior at Stillwater High School here in Stillwater. And so it's it's not quite the same now as it used to be. But back in those days when they were young, absolutely. Uh, it was a chance to, you know, maybe grab one of them and take them to lunch or, you know, do something especially fun in the off weekend. Or maybe it was a trip to my wife's parents to go see grandpa and grandma, whatever the case may be. So, yeah, I mean, because those opportunities don't present themselves very often, it's, it is very important. And, you know, I think one of the big things in this business, and I tell the students this in the class I teach, and I'm, and I'm serious about this, if you're going to work in this business, boy, you really better have a spouse that, number one, understands it and is okay with it, and number two, she'd probably better be independent. Because when I say that, there are so many nights so many nights when we're gone. And if you have young children, that means the mom or the wife, or if you're a female sportscaster, it's your husband. Same thing. Whoever that is, wife or husband that's home while we're on the road, it's got to make sure the homework gets done, make sure the kids get to bed, make sure they get up the next day if we're gone overnight for a game. You know, it takes a special type of spouse, whether it's husband or wife, to do that. Not everybody can do that. And that's okay. Everybody's made their own special way. But boy, as a young announcer, I, I really encourage you to, to have that conversation with that special person, that guy or gal, and, and make sure they understand what they're getting into. Because gosh, when my oldest was born, I was at Radford, 1996, and our daughter was two months old. And I promptly left for eight days on a road trip. We had three games on the road. We went from one to the other. We were gone for eight days. I'm telling you, there's not a lot of, I'm lucky I have a wife that could not only manage that, but worked full time and had an hour long commute back and forth. And she can handle that. You know, those guys and gals don't walk in the door every day. So uh, I'm very blessed. My wife is a full-time professional, has her own career. She's very successful, but she gets it. She's always been very supportive. So that's one thing to keep in mind. I know I veered off track here, but, Whoever that is that is your is your spouse, guy or gal, uh, you know, make sure they understand all the dynamics of what goes into this because it's it's tough for the uh the spouse that's at home while you're on the road. It's interesting that we, we veered in this direction just because I am I'm a newlywed. I got married at the time we're recording this about a month and a half ago, a little bit more than that. What would your advice be to someone who's trying to build a family a family life and uh and a marriage and make it work despite having this sportscasting career well one thing that i've always thought just in terms of marriage as a whole regardless of what your religious affiliation may be and i think with our limited time at specific times of year that we're home this becomes critical is every decision is a team decision and so when you have some free time as an announcer, you know, you could choose, well, I'm going to go fish or maybe I could do a couple of loads of laundry and help the spouse out because I'm going to be gone this weekend. 
So, you know, really being conscientious of your choices, it's easy when, you know, we're so crazy busy at times to, to look at that free time and say, oh boy, I'm, I'm going to go do this, or I'm going to go do that, or I'm going to go to happy hour with my buddies, or whatever the case may be. And certainly that's fine. But I think one thing that I, I feel is important is every decision is a team decision right down to whether you go fish or not. Now, you still need to go fish. You need your time to do your hobbies and, and have some time to, to, cl- to clear your mind. But I think just always sort of operate, even when you're not working with your spouse in mind, and think of what's best for both of us. How can I make things easier for her knowing that I'm going to be gone or that November is coming up? Those types of things. And just and just think along those lines and, and, and be thinking as a good teammate the entire time. And really, that's what it comes down to. I mean, it's it's a marriage. It's a it's a union of love. So that's obviously how it's defined. So it obviously should be that way anyway. But but you have to kind of train your mind to think that way. So I think just the big thing is, you know, always kind of make decisions and think about things when you can, keeping your spouse in mind. And uh, as you get older and you get into a marriage, I think that gets easier because it just becomes it becomes habit. You mentioned that it's important to have a little bit of time for yourself and be able to pursue your own hobbies. What are your hobbies outside of the broadcast booth? Well, I love to play golf. Uh, I wish I were better, but I do love to play. Now, I have I have taught myself how to get 18 holes in by myself in an hour and 35 minutes. So I can squeeze that in uh, in a lot of places because I don't mess around. Uh, I just go out and do my thing. And I've kind of had a little bowling renaissance. I bowled a lot as a kid. Now my kids are older. I've kind of got back into that when I have time, which is limited. So it's kind of funny. A lot of us that do this, I think, almost need their own competitive outlets. We watch and observe and report on competition all the time. So we're around it, but we're not involved in it. I know for me, I kind of need that little competitive outlet for me. Now, I don't get too much into it. I mean, I, I, I'm not like cutthroat, don't get me wrong, but I, I think a lot of us, and I have friends that kind of feel the same way in the business, I think sometimes you'd like, oh boy, I'm around this competition all the time. I'm around these people pushing themselves to to be great all the time. Well, well now it's my turn. And so it's it's whether it's playing golf or, you know, whether I'm bowling or whatever. I mean, those are the things. And Obviously, first and foremost is being with my family. But in terms of what I like to do, yeah, I, 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 I absolutely love to play golf. I've kind of got back into this bowling thing when I have time, and it's hard to have much time to do that. It's just if you're going to squeeze those things in, you know, just don't mess around. I mean, I think you can if you're organized and 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 you really have a pretty good routine, you can find a little bit of time for yourself uh, if you're disciplined and you have a good kind of an idea, a good routine week to week, what you're trying to get done. Uh, you can squeeze a little time in for yourself, but if you're not real disciplined with your time and you're not a taskmaster, that's hard to do. The key is to be a good taskmaster, to kind of stick to a schedule, set your own deadlines for yourself as to when you want things to be done during the course of the week. And you'll be surprised that that, uh, hour and 35 minute round of golf every once in a while might be a reality. It might be something you can get done. So have you perfected the needle shot if the group in front of you is moving too slowly? <laughs> the key is be the first one off the tee at 8 a.m. <laughs> if it's later in the day, it's not quite so fast. So 
No, I'm pretty respectful, but uh, thankfully, when I when I usually find time to get out, it's uh, it's early in the day when when I might be the only one out there and uh, try to kind of beat the rush. But no, I, I I do not hit into people, nor do I want to be hit into. Of course, the way I play, I might be trying to hit into them, hit it 30 yards right, so it may not make any difference. The best thing I might do might be to aim to try to hit them, and then they would know they were safe. I have always said the same thing that you should be worried. You should not be worried if I'm aiming at you. You should be worried if I'm aiming somewhere else. <laughs> but, no, I hear you loud and clear on that. So I read that you always knew more or less what you wanted to do, that you wanted to get into sports broadcasting. And even at a young age of, I believe it was 10 or 12, you would do PA for local softball games as a 10-year-old. Do you remember that time of your life and how you got into it and any stories from that time frame? Oh yeah, I do. Uh, I just, I just jabbered all the time about sports. And I, I, you know, when I got older, I finally ran across Atball and became immediately hooked on the baseball simulation game Atball. I mean, hook, line and sinker. But when I was younger and really didn't have any money anyway, uh, you know, on my own to spend, I just created my own simulation baseball games based off stats and I had dice and I played and he announced the games to myself. It's highly annoying to my brother who was three years older. My parents never said anything, so I don't know if it was annoying to them or not. But it, it probably was, but they probably are too nice to say anything. But kind of knowing that everybody knew that in town I grew up in a little tiny town of two thousand in northeast Missouri, Cahoka, Missouri. It's a great place to grow up. It was in the extreme northeast corner of the furthest county northeast in Missouri. So everybody knew I had this interest in it, and I loved doing it. So I can remember one of those all-night slow-pitch softball tournaments out at the Ball Diamond in Cahokia. They said, well, why don't you come? We're going to have a PA. Why don't, you, why don't you come do it? Well, I was like, well, shoot, I was all over that. Now, the problem is I started doing radio play-by-play instead of PA. So they had to come tell me after about a game, hey, uh, we really don't want the outfielder to know the guy's rounding third. is kind of taken away from the sport. <laughs> So just give the name of the batter and, 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 and leave it at that. So, like, oh, okay, I can do that. So I thought I'd do play-by-play right on the PA. So that, I got that corrected really fast. But, oh, those were fun days. I only got to stay to 11. Then I had to go home and go to bed. So I had to go. I didn't get to do the games all night. I got to stay to about 11 or 11.30 and then go home, go to bed, and come back the next morning. But, you know, that was one of the benefits of growing up in a small town is that, you know, everybody knew each other and, they knew what your interests were and, you know, they tried to help you, you know, sort of get started in those interests. And my first radio job was in the next town over in Memphis, Missouri, 24 miles away. And that was because of a friend who actually was a little bit involved in getting me in, into that public address announcing when I was 10. So yeah, I was really lucky. People, people really tried to help me and give me opportunities. And, you know, growing up in that, in that tiny town was, was, was fantastic. You mentioned your first radio job was uh, that you got that with help from the same person who got you that PA job when you were 10. How did that happen? Who was it? And how did that connection work? When I was a senior in high school, my junior and senior year in high school, I shot video for the football team and was a manager and, you know, kind of whatever Coach Dave Long wanted me to do, I did. And I loved it. I was so small, I couldn't play football. I played in eighth grade defensive end and got absolutely mauled. It's a wonder I didn't just break into pieces. I managed to survive it. I loved it, but I was really small. And so 
and I say small, I was tall, but I was just a stick. I was a twig. So, so I did all that. And, uh, this gentleman, Rick Fisher, who was uh, a broadcaster in the station in Memphis, Missouri, which went on the air about two years prior to that. I think my sophomore year of high school, they went on the air. You know, he knew of my interest in it. And he told me, uh, he had called me, I think it was the day before a homecoming game at home and asked me, Hey, we've got someone that's not going to be at the game tomorrow night. Could you jump in and be on the air with us a little bit on the radio? It's like, well, yeah, I, I mean, I'm sure I could work that out. And so I did work it out and I was only on for maybe a series or two, but I helped him out. And then he said, well, during basketball, we'd love to have reports on the Clark County basketball games for the next morning. We'd have you call in and put you on the air. I said, well, I'd love to do that. I was a statistician for basketball. Once again, not nearly skilled enough to play because, you know, kind of like my golf game, I'd aim at the rim and it'd end up in the tuba. I tried to shoot. I, I couldn't, I couldn't shoot to save my life. I'd, pretty good defensive player I always thought but I couldn't I couldn't score so I was a statistician and helped out again just kind of wherever I could so the when basketball season started they had me call in these reports and it was a blast and it was the first time I'd ever been on the air and then lo and behold about two and a half weeks after that the station manager a general uh, the general manager and owner named Sam Berkowitz a wonderful man called me up and said, uh, Hey, we need somebody to be on the air on Sunday nights from five to 12 and host an oldie show. And then we'd like for you to help us with our basketball broadcasts this season. And you, you could have picked me up off the ground. I couldn't believe it. It's like, are you kidding me? I'm, uh, I was, and there was, you know, a little bit of a concern that lasted about four seconds about, being on the air until midnight shutting down the station because the station signed off at midnight. So I'd have to shut down the station and clean up, clean up the studio and leave at 1230 and drive 24 miles home and get back to Cahoka at one and get up and go to school the next morning as a senior in high school. But my mom was incredibly supportive. She didn't even hesitate. She's like, Oh, I know how badly you want to do this. So if there's a problem, we'll deal with it then, but I don't think there's going to be a problem. So go for it. So I did and uh, hosted an oldie show. I didn't know much about it, uh, but I just kind of did the best I could and played the music and there really wasn't too much to do and, uh, and went and did high school basketball games with them. And that was a tremendous experience. That was a, for a, a station that operated in a town of about 2,100 because Memphis where the radio station was and Cahoka which is where I lived, they were rival high schools separated by 24 miles, Memphis being west of Cahokia on Highway 136. It, but that radio station, even in a small town, was a tremendous operation. I learned so much about what radio really is. It's about serving the community. And that was instilled in me. And I think you didn't even have to, it was something that just by observation, you understood quickly what we were doing and why, and everything was about serving the community. Uh, Sam Berkowitz was a tremendous uh, influence and great broadcaster, as was a gentleman named Jim Sears, who was a dear friend and uh, a fabulous broadcaster who ended up serving in the Missouri State Legislature and was a rising star in the Missouri House of Representatives and then was tragically killed 
uh, in a car accident uh, the night before Thanksgiving of 1996, and he, I, who knows how far he would have gone politically. I mentioned Rick Fisher, who was the guy that got me involved in this to begin with, and he's still at that radio station today, working in Memphis, Missouri, and a gentleman named Dave Bowden, who was a school teacher by day and a broadcaster on the weekend at night, and I learned a lot from those guys. You know, sometimes small-town operations are a little sketchy, I suppose, but not there. It was a great operation, and I learned so much, not only about just the technical part, but what type of attitude a broadcaster should have, and that's one of service. And it was a huge influence on me that still remains ingrained in me today. So you eventually chose to go to the University of Missouri, of course, the you know, famous journalism school. After you were done there, what was your first break that actually got you into, I guess I should rephrase that. What was your first break that got you your first job as a professional as opposed to just the part-time jobs that you had when you were in high school and probably in college to a degree? Sure. When I was a senior in, in college, I started working part-time at KFRU in Columbia, Missouri, which at that time was the flagship station for the University of Missouri for all sports. And bear in mind, at that time, see, we didn't have the really long pre- and post-game shows for network broadcasts as we have today. For example, if I remember correctly, University of Missouri football pregame show was 30 minutes. That was it. And postgame show was about 15 or 20. So we did uh, pregame and postgame shows for University of Missouri football, which I was involved in. I was not the main anchor by any means of the, uh, of the pregame show. That was my uh, boss and friend, Bob Pollock, who did that and did a fabulous job with it. And but I was very involved in doing post game. And so I did that on a part time basis. And then I was so lucky that in February of my senior year, after I'd worked there roughly eight or nine months, the station came to me and said, hey, we really think we could probably take on another full time sports person. Would you like to do it and do afternoon sports cast? This was a news talk station, I might add. So it was an important part of what they were trying to do. You know, you can do Columbia Rockbridge High School play-by-play football and basketball and uh, do a sports talk show every night and do these sports casts and then pre- and post-game for Missouri football and basketball. Well, gosh, I'm, I'm, how good is that? So I was really lucky. That was another great operation. Uh, you know, it was tough as time went along financially just because the broadcast business was changing, but the quality of what was put on the air at KFRU was fantastic. And so many talented people uh, went through KFRU at one time. Larry Zimmer worked at KFRU, Brad Sham worked at KFRU, and I know I'm leaving others out. But it was a, it was a, it was a wonderful place to cut my teeth. I realized quickly that talk radio was not my thing. I mean, I was okay at it. I, I, you know, I did well enough to, to keep going at it, but I wasn't great at it. But play-by-play had always been my passion, and that that really was cemented there, even doing those high school games and eventually doing Columbia College NAI basketball there. It was, uh, it was a great time. It was a, it was a, it was a really good operation. I was, I was incredibly fortunate to work for some, some, some fantastic people in, in, in quality uh, radio stations early in my career because Bill Weaver, the general manager, and Bob Pollack, who was my boss as a sports director, were, were really good. After that, your first 
big break getting into the Division I play-by-play arena. You went to Radford in Virginia to become their play-by-play voice. How did that happen? That seems a long way away and not closely connected to Missouri in any way that I can obviously think of. How did that come about? Well, it's interesting, and and I'll backtrack a little bit uh, to kind of give you the context of the story. In 1991, the radio station KFRU was not doing well financially, and uh, in 1991, in August, they they laid off some people, including me. It just couldn't afford to carry the staff that they'd been carrying, and so uh, thankfully, I'd been doing Columbia College play-by-play part-time, and uh, so they were nice enough to bring me over there part-time to uh, be a sports information director and do their broadcast. We, we had a one camera shoot of volleyball and they had a terrific volleyball program. They still do at Columbia college. So we had a one camera shoot. I did some volleyball TV play by play and about the most simplistic way you can imagine. And, and basketball, we had the games on the radio and took the audio and ran it to that same camera. And it's a great time. I worked with a hall of fame athletic director and coach Bob Burchard's in the NAI hall of fame and one of the all time great NAI coaches. And he was just starting his head coaching career and, one of the most enjoyable people to work with that I've had the pleasure of being with in my career. Lots of fun, incredibly creative, and that was a blast. I mean, I didn't really make any money, uh, and so, but I was still looking for a job. I was still trying to, you know, I spent a year, gosh, over a year just trying to find a job and, and, and not much happening. I mean, applying for radio station jobs, applying for play-by-play jobs, nothing, nothing, nothing. And I finally reached out to Tom Hedrick, who I knew from some of the things he'd done to help us with our football pregame show. He was still teaching sports announcing at the University of Kansas. And uh, I asked if I could come over, and he said, come over and spend the day. And I was working at Columbia College part-time, so I did, and I took some audio. And that was the revelation for me that really changed how I thought and has been was probably the, the the one of the big moments in my career because we talked about my on-air work and what needed to change, and then he talked to me about how to get a job. And he talked to me about the politics of broadcasting and how you have to build a network and you have to work hard to build relationships and you have to have people on your side to get jobs, especially at the collegiate and professional level and play-by-play because there are many, many quality people out there and how you really separate yourself most of the time is because of who you know and not necessarily because of how good your work is, assuming that there are lots of people complying that are all more than talented enough to get the job. And so that changed my way of thinking. And I called every Division One conference in America, all of them, and talked to their media relations people and said, hey, do you know of anybody in your conference that might be looking for a play-by-play guy? When I called the Big South, they steered me toward UNC Greensboro. They were just going Division One. They said, call John Montgomery, who's in charge of that at UNC Greensboro, associate athletic director. So I called John, and he said, you know, we've got somebody in mind. Uh, we want to use a local television anchor. You need to call West Durham at Radford. You guys would probably, you know, John Montgomery was a Radford guy. He knew West. He said, call Wes. I think you guys would hit it off. I bet, Wes, I bet Wes would enjoy talking to you. So I called Wes. We hit off a great friendship. 
from day one, just on the phone. And when he left, he tried to help me get the job at Radford. And uh, they went with Hank Dickinson, who's become another dear friend, who's now the voice of North Texas, and a KU guy. So Hank stays a year and goes back to VCU. The job opens again, and a lot because of Wes Durham's help the second time around as well, I end up getting the Radford job. So it's an example of the absolute critical component of taking the time to build a network, taking the time to get on the phone and call people, you know, building friendships, building relationships. Wes and I are still very good friends to this day. And we talk often and we exchange ideas. He sent me their pregame show during the off season for me to listen to, because I wanted to do some tweaking to what we were doing here at Oklahoma state. You know, that's how that happened. That's how a guy from Missouri ends up at Radford in the middle of the Blue Ridge Mountains in Virginia, a place he'd never been to before, is because of the network I built and uh, and the friendship with West Durham. And we had eight wonderful years there. Both of our children were born there. We enjoyed it tremendously. And so many things happened at Radford that led to where I am today, things that perhaps even happened at the, that at the time I had no idea how important they'd be. What were some of those things? Because that's obviously where we're going to go next. What were some of those connections that eventually led you uh, to Western Kentucky for a year and then uh, finally to Oklahoma State? The biggest thing, honestly, was when the Big South was trusting enough to allow me to be their television play-by-play voice uh, when they started a TV package in 1996. There were only four games at that time, and you know, one thing West did that was not only good content on the air, but it turned out to be incredible from a networking standpoint is when we did the Radford pregame show, we always interviewed the opposing coach. Well, when you interview guys in your conference twice, sometimes three times a year, and you're hopefully doing a good job, you develop relationships, really good relationships with those guys. And so I worked hard at that and was fortunate that, you know, I think all those guys respected my work and, you know, they allowed the coaches allowed that to happen, which was, I didn't know if they would. I thought, oh boy, they're not going to want a guy affiliated with one school to do this. And so they were nice enough to allow me to do that. And, and what that led to was some relationships that helped me down the line, specifically when Asheville, North Carolina hosted the Big South Tournament. Uh, a gentleman that was helping them with that effort was a former athletic director at the University of Missouri and former commissioner of the Southern Conference, Dave Hart. Dave Hart Sr., that is, who has passed away. And, of course, with both of us having ties to Missouri, we did not know one another when I was at Missouri, but we had all these mutual friends. And uh, Dave Hart Sr. and I struck up a great relationship. He was absolutely vital in my coming to Oklahoma State. Uh, he was, along with Joe Castiglione, the, the, the two guys that really went to bat for me and uh, and made a huge difference. And, you know, I, I, I knew that it, I knew Mr. Hart was an icon, not only in athletics, but specifically in the area of multimedia and radio networks, because he was the one that started the relationship with Learfield and got all that off the ground. And he knew broadcasting and he understood announcers and uh, so that relationship was huge. I had so much respect for him, and he understood. He 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 understood broadcasting, and that's why Joe Castiglione is such an innovator and pioneer in the area of 
television and radio and always will be because I think Dave Hart influenced him and Joe has a tremendous grasp of broadcasting. What's good on the air? What, who, you know, what do good announcers do? What separates one announcer from the other? You know, how to be progressive in the area of broadcasting to stay ahead, to be the trendsetter instead of the reactionary. And, you know, Oklahoma State people shudder to hear me say that, but you have to give credit where credit's due. Oklahoma's been ahead of the curve, and that's Joe Casiglione. So, you know, going back to what we were saying, you know, just I knew the television play-by-play would be a great opportunity. I had no idea that it would lead to the relationship with Dave Hart Sr. that would later be instrumental in my coming to Oklahoma State, where I've been very fortunate to be the last 17 years. So going to Oklahoma State was a probably a uniquely challenging experience for you, and I'm sure you've talked about this uh, more than you've ever wanted to, but you had to follow uh, Bill Teagans, who passed away as part of that tragic airplane crash that that happened in the early 90s, and you were the person who got the job after that. What were, I guess, how did you handle that situation, knowing that a well-liked broadcaster had just passed away in tragic circumstances and you were the next guy? Did they? How did they treat you? How did you handle that? The fans here were unbelievably nice to me, and that was the key. I'm not sure that it would have worked out the way it did at a lot of other places. This is such a kind, friendly, family-oriented place. And they welcomed me like one of their own from day one. You know, I know I made a lot of mistakes, and they just were very accepting of that and tolerant of that. And again, I don't think I could have gone anywhere else and had that type of support. People were just incredibly nice. And that's just, but they're like that all the time. And that's why I love it here so much. That's how people are. That's how they. That's how they function. And uh, so that was the big thing. And, you know, when I was, you know, cons- you know, and when I'd been contacted about the job and, and then was involved in the job, I, I got some cold feet. And in early, you know, I think it was sometime late spring, I had a conversation with Joe Castiglione. I said, Joe, I don't know. The more I think about this, the, the more that, uh, Maybe I think this might be more than I can handle. And he reassured me and said, hey, I wouldn't have put you out there for this job if I didn't think you could handle it. You can handle it. Just go do what you do. Be the person I know you are. Everything will be fine. And then he said also, he said, hey, and if you, you know, you have a decent chance to get this job. But the next job that opens up in a Power Five conference it may not be this way. You you may not be able to get it. You may have to wait 10 years to have another chance. So what are you going to do? I said, well, let's do it. You know, if it works out, then let's do it. And I was fortunate that it did work out. And, you know, I remember him telling me that it really helped me because it just said, Hey, just be yourself, do what you do. And, you know, just go in there. And, you know, one thing I didn't want to do, and I don't like to do this anyway, is it just like, don't, you know, I didn't want to call a lot of attention to myself. I just wanted to, do the job, do the job and just let people hopefully respect the quality of work over time and just build up credibility over time. And don't, you know, don't go in and and try to do too much or, but you still have to be yourself. So there's a fine line there. You, 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 you certainly don't want to call attention to yourself by any means, but at the same time, you, you can't, 
fake it either. I mean, you have to have your personality. So uh, the, the support was great. And then I really, the first year or two, just tried to come in and just do the job to the best of my ability, always be very prepared uh, and, and, and try to just gain the trust and respectability of the Oklahoma State people over time and, and just be patient and hope that it worked out. How long did it take for you to feel like it was your job and that you were the guy instead of the guy who was replacing the guy before who had tragically passed away? You know, I never really thought of it that way, truthfully. I just sort of just plugged and just did what I did um, because I knew that would always be the case. I knew that going in. And I recognized that if that was going to bother me, I needed to stay in Bowling Green, Kentucky at Western. So I, I never really thought of it that way. You, you know, and, and that Bill was so beloved with good reason. I mean, he was able to walk the fence as a television sportscaster between Oklahoma and Oklahoma State and had both sides like him. In this state, that's impossible. You have to be a saint to be able to do that. And he was. He was a wonderful man. And I didn't have a chance to get to know him, but you just hear so much about him from people who were close to him and his family that you have a pretty good gauge of the type of person that he was. And he was fantastic. And he had done Oklahoma State play-by-play and had been a part of some huge moments and did great work. And, and so, you know, you, you, you realize that, you know, for that generation of Oklahoma state people, you know, Bill Teagans is the voice of the Cowboys and that's fine. Uh, you know, it, and that won't change for a lot of people and that's okay too. I mean, that's, you know, shoot, it's, Hey, the reality is people just, they want to be entertained and they want to be informed at the end of the day. In most cases, they're not that concerned with who does it. They just want their stuff. And, you know, so I never really thought about it that much. I mean, the the fact that people were as supportive as they were was all that mattered to me because it made us feel welcome. It made my family feel welcome. We had two little girls at that time. And uh, we only were in Bowling Green, Kentucky for 54 weeks. So we basically packed and unpacked and packed again and, uh, we came here sight unseen. I'd been here one time in 1988 to cover a Missouri Oklahoma State football game. My wife had never been here, and uh, we just did it. So to show up here and to have people treat you the way that we were treated uh, was, oh, my gosh, talk about impactful. Uh, you, you fall in love with a place like this really fast when you're treated as well as you are. and You know, they're forgiving of your mistakes you know, and the fact that you're still trying to learn. It was, it was amazing to me how that played out. Teaching is also part of your current job description at Oklahoma State. Was that always the case? How did you get into teaching? You know, it was not always the case. Uh, John McGuire is, Dr. John McGuire, I should say, is one of our faculty members in sports media and, uh, strategic communications here at Oklahoma state. He was doing high school games in central Missouri in Jefferson city, Missouri at the same time in the late eighties, early nineties that I was doing Columbia Rockbridge high school play by play. And those schools played one another. So we knew each other and he was on the, he had just come here as a faculty member at Oklahoma state. A couple of years after his arrival, this would have been right around 2005, 2006 
was implementing a true sports media degree. I mean, you could go to Oklahoma State previously and certainly work your way up through the ranks and, and become a prominent sports announcer. I mean, Ted Leitner is an Oklahoma State graduate, for example. I mean, you know, he he obviously got uh, a great education here and was able to to do very well in the broadcasting world, as has Jeff Haxton, who's the basketball play-by-play guy at Texas Tech. You know, there was no true sports media degree program at that time, but John approached me first about a sports media camp that they wanted to do sort of to help unveil this sports media degree program. And he asked me about kind of being the, the, the lead instructor for it. And so I thought, well, you know, what the heck? I'd done some guest lecturing at Radford previously, just a little bit. And so he got me into that. And then they approached me shortly after that and said, what would you think about teaching a class adjunct? I just teach the one sports announcing class adjunct. And I said, well, shoot, I'll give it a try. I mean, I, I, you know, I, I, I will share with them what I know and certainly I'll do research so that I can enhance what I know. It's not all about what I know, but I, I will certainly prepare, but you know, the biggest thing I think I can offer are my experiences, good and bad. And so that started in 2007 and I'm still teaching today. And it's been a lot of fun. Uh, they've taught me a lot. That's one of the best things about teaching is you learn a lot from the students. And because you're teaching it, you're constantly evaluating, at least I am, am I doing what I'm telling them to do? Or am I being some sort of uh, glorified hypocrite here? And so I think it leads you to a lot of self-examination as to the quality of your work, as to the habits maybe you're getting into, good and bad. And those kids are smart. And if you tell them something in class on Thursday, don't do this. And then you go out on Saturday on the air doing Oklahoma State and you do it. Come Tuesday at 1230, they will absolutely call you on the carpet for it. I learned that fast. Were there any and specific so, examples of that? Oh, you know, I think just just basic, you know, basic things, you know, about, you know, making sure that, uh, you know, that you don't get into criticizing the officials too much. I think that's the big thing. There's a whole story on that that I can get into. This is a podcast. We have all the time in the world to tell stories. You have all the time you want? Oh, guys. All right, this is a good story. So 2009, we're playing the University of Houston, and uh, Oklahoma State was ranked fifth in the country at that time, and it just beat Georgia in the opener. And Houston came in with a quarterback named Case Keenum and an offensive coordinator named Dana Holgerson, and uh, they were pretty darn good. I just don't think people knew just how good they were at that time. And it was a Houston jumped out to a lead and Oklahoma state scrambling back. And I thought Houston had an illegal lineman downfield on a critical third down play. And that lineman was roughly, you know, two yards down the field. And I was very critical of that. And uh, it just so happened that Walt Anderson, the supervisor of officials, for the big 12 was at that game and happened to be listening to post game. And uh, through OSU Athletics, I got word that, hey, that rule has, was not one yard down the field the way it is in the NFL. It's three yards. It's different now. They've changed it. I didn't know that. And uh, that was a highly embarrassing situation. But what it did is it taught me a great lesson. Uh, Walt Anderson, the next spring, announces that not only our network TV guy is going to be invited to the Big 12 officials clinic each year, so will the radio talent. When my wife heard this, she looked up from brushing her teeth and said, 
you'll be attending that after that Houston fiasco, won't you? It's like, yes, ma'am, I sure will. <laughs> and I went, uh, I've had to miss uh, the last couple, but I went to about the first seven and I'll make sure I'll be back next year. That conflicts. But uh, so, so, you know, little things like that that happened, I got called on, but that was a great lesson, you know, for me is that by golly, if you're going to get on the air, you either, you, you, you don't guess, you better darn well know, especially when it comes to officiating. If you don't absolutely know for sure, keep your mouth shut. And just because you go to the clinic doesn't mean you're an expert. That's just a small introduction. But over time, hopefully you build up some understanding as to some of the tricks of their job. And, and it's been incredibly enlightening to me to understand that they, you know, there are rules, but there are axioms and principles that they work off of. You know, for example, what's roughing the kicker versus running into the kicker? Well, running into the kicker most often is when a player strikes the kicking leg. Roughing the kicker is most often defined as when the plant leg is struck. And the reason why is because of the risk of injury. And I learned that there. So, yeah, that was the big thing was the whole officiating thing. And I got that one stuck down my throat and uh, realized, hey, better get your rear end down there. You need to learn. You need to make sure that doesn't happen again. And also, if you don't know for sure, keep your mouth shut. And uh, I've either known for sure or kept my mouth shut ever since. But what I have done is gives you a whole different perspective on officiating to where you say, really, Dave, you're going to you as an announcer are going to be overly critical of officials on a consistent basis. And you know how badly those guys want to get it right because you've sat and broken bread with them and listened to them talk and ask them questions. And then you realize, you know what, there are some rare occasions where maybe something needs to be pointed out, but most of the time you just keep your mouth shut. Were you in the room when coach Gundy went on his, I'm a man, I'm 40 rant. <laughs> I was in the booth doing post game and uh <laughs> oh my gosh Robert Allen our sideline reporter was was in the, was kind of getting organized to do post game and he gets on that he gets in, in the queue circuit during one of our commercial breaks and says oh boy you're not going to believe what just happened this is going to be an interesting post game because it, the the thing had already happened and so, no, I was not there. We were doing post-game. I caught wind of it. Then I did the TV show with Coach Gundy afterwards. And uh, he was calmed down by then. But, uh, yeah, that was that was a strange day uh, and, and a strange event, to say the least. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's I, – uh, I, I, I can always just remember Robert Allen, our sideline reporter, getting on and saying, oh, you're not going to believe what just happened. And it kind of went from there. Is that something that I've read about you? seems like you have a pretty darn good relationship with a lot of the coaches, including Coach Gundy. Is that something that you guys can joke about now that it's uh, had some time passed and, and become kind of part of pop culture? Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. We, and the thing about with Coach Gundy, uh, for us as a crew, I don't know if there'd be a better coach to work with in America. And and I know some network TV guys might be listening to this and say, well, that's nonsense because he doesn't even let us talk to coordinators because he doesn't. Uh, he's one voice when it comes to the network TV crews, which is pretty unusual. And, you know, I've never asked him why he feels that way. But as far as our relationship as a crew, I mean, he just totally trusts us. And he, he tells us everything. I mean, 
you know, pretty much whatever we want to know, we can ask and find out. And it doesn't mean it goes on the air. I mean, so much in this business isn't what you say, it's what you don't say uh, to sometimes where you get yourself in trouble. So, you know, it's, it's really nice uh, that, that he is as good as he is. And we have that relationship. It allows us to be pretty darn honest on the air about what's going on uh, because he trusts us, but he also knows we go to practice. We watch video. We take a lot of pride in our work. And uh, for young announcers, boy, I, I think relationships are everything. Uh, it's, you know, and we talked about networking before, but, you know, building those relationships with coaches, head coaches, assistant coaches, you know, the guys who spend the most time with the actual players in football are the strength coaches. They're the ones that know them better than anybody. So getting to know those guys and they have their own insight and, you know, the, the equipment managers spend tons of time with the football players. So they know them, you know, during a game week, I mean, I'll talk to all kinds of different people, just kind of getting a feel for what they think and, you know, the, the, the mood of the team, certain players, you know, whatever. And so building that credibility and, and building that trust with the coaching staffs to where, you know, they trust you and, and you understand how to use information you receive judiciously and know what, shouldn't be said versus what should be said. It's just enormous. Uh, so yeah, we, we can kind of joke around and talk about just about anything. And, uh, we're all very fortunate that way because it impacts the quality of the broadcast. I, you know, it, it'll, it allows us to, to really get into some things and be truthful about some things that, uh, that may not be possible everywhere. So this next question, I need to give a little bit of context first it says I do, uh, essentially play-by-play practice, not every night, but pretty close. And I go on YouTube and I just pick random games. And one day, I picked Oklahoma State. And I also try to keep a scorebook while I do that to just get better at that and get better at the whole process. Oklahoma State on offense, with their no huddle, moved so fast that I could not keep an accurate <laughs> score and... And, and get up and I would look up after writing something down and the play would already be almost over. How difficult is it as a play-by-play broadcaster to handle an offense that moves that fast? That is a great question. And it's tricky uh, because what, what, what can happen is, well, let, let me start here. I think one of the big keys is your analyst has to be sort of on board and understand the challenges of it. I have an analyst, John Holcomb, who is a television sportscaster. He understands how to say a lot in not much time. That's huge when it comes to managing a football broadcast where you have not only in most cases one team that's going tempo, most of the time it's both teams in the Big 12 where they're both just flying up and down the field. And then you you just have to try to do your best to keep up. and. At the same time, one of the tricks is, you know, you, you, you can't go so fast that people can't process it. So you have to kind of learn, you know, how to, to, to cut to the chase and, you know, give the very basics, but you still have to set up the play. I mean, you still have to set up the play. It's third and seven at the 48, uh, whatever the case may be. Those basics still have to be covered, but it takes some time to get used to it. I think it took us probably two to three years to really get used to it. It was, 
it was hard initially. It was it's hard to just as a play-by-play guy continue to talk in football when the normal cadence is to call the play. You know, for me, it's give the distance of the play that that just occurred and set up the next play. It's going to be second and two from the 48, whatever. Uh, now with the tempo offense, you may do that, just go right into the next play. So there's a rhythm to it. Now, I'll be honest with you, if I had to go back and do a team that huddled, it would take me a couple of years to get used to that. I'm dead serious. It would take time to get used to it. And teams that do huddle, like Kansas State, you know, sometimes it's, it's almost like you're having an anxiety attack waiting for them to snap the ball. Because they wait till the last minute to snap it anyway once they go to the line because they want the quarterback to have the last possible second to survey the defense and try to recognize any coverages that might be coming their way. So it's it takes some time to get used to it. And you have to be really efficient in how you set the plays up in terms of down and distance and so forth. And and then you just roll with it. And uh, breath control is huge because it can if you get four or five plays where they're going mega, mega fast, it can be hard to get a breath. Have you ever missed a play? No. No, thankfully I have not. No. Uh, that That's not happened. Uh, you know, thankfully, again, you get used to the cadence of it, and it moves really fast, but thankfully, no. I, I cannot say that's ever happened. I think about the fastest we ever went that I remember was 2013 at UTSA. And, and we went tempo in that game in the first half, and I mean – it was absolutely insanely fast. I mean, crazy fast. I mean, we still go fast now. I don't know that we've ever gone as fast as we did at San Antonio that day. And it was, uh, you know, you, you. I finally made a joke right in the middle of it. I said, I feel like I'm an auctioneer. And uh, it was just go. And, uh, yeah, that one, I'll never forget that. We were flying that day, 2013. So tell us about the time, and I saw this, I think, on a, a YouTube interview that you did, when Russell Okung stole candy from your broadcast booth. <laughs> so Russell Okung was back. He was playing with the Seattle Seahawks at that time. And uh, he was back with a defensive end on our Big 12 championship team, Rochette Jones. They were just back for a game hanging out. Rochette and it's still kind of is an aspiring broadcaster, real colorful guy. Absolutely love Russell O'Quinn. Well, our spotter, Eddie Neundorf, loved those Krabby Patty candy things. I was never much burnt one into them. My oldest daughter used to go and work in the booth with us all the time, so we invariably made a stop to pick up candy and snacks for everybody and kind of pick out what everybody liked. And Shoot, that thing was full. That bag was full when those guys went up there, and about three left when they left. I told Russ, I said, shoot. You know, gosh, next time I'll make sure I bring more. You can just bring some for us. Because Rochetti and Russ like those Cabby Patty candy things, too. So the next thing you know, shoot, they're off to go down the sideline. And my man, Eddie, was he's out of luck on the Cabby Patties. <laughs> we loved Russ Lacombe's are wonderful. He's not only, a, obviously, a, a big-time NFL uh, starting offensive tackle, but someone who's been very involved in uh, – trying to help others, very involved in a, in a ministry, you know, a very spiritual young man, uh, high, high quality, big-time football player and even more big-time person. He's he's one of our special ones that's come through here. The other story that I found uh, somewhat uh, mortifying 
being in your position, the time that you talked about blowing a call while Bob Carpenter was next to you in the booth. Oh, my gosh. There's a good lesson here, too. We just talked about this in class the other day. It's funny you bring it up. So Bob Carpenter, somebody who I always respected tremendously, of course, people now know him as the Washington Nationals television voice, prior to that in St. Louis, doing the Cardinals. Now I was a huge Cardinal fan. And Bob Carpenter was great friends with our producer engineer at that time, Joe Riddle. They both worked in Tulsa together. So the Bedlam game would have been, goodness, probably 2007. We're playing down in Norman, and uh, OU's got the ball about the Oklahoma State 35, and they run a play, and they hand it off to the tailback, and it's like their four-string guy. Well... At risk of embarrassment, I just basically said it was the second-string guy that carried it. What was wrong? The guy scored a touchdown, and the hole popped wide open, and he took off, and I panicked. And in the middle of the run, I said it was the second-team guy, and boy, was that a terrible call. It was awful and just completely blew it. And then I realized, and then I teach this in the class, like, look, guys, don't panic. If you don't know who it is off the top, call the play all the results, and then go back and say who it was. Because what people are most concerned about, number one, is the outcome. Now, right behind the very close second is who did it. But the big thing is what just happened to that team on the field. Then you better be right behind it with who did it. Well, if I'd have waited, I could have gone and checked and found out who it was and could have just called the play, called the outcome, gone back and said who did it. Now, as I tell the students, do not make a regular habit of that. That is an occasional bailout that you can use, but don't panic. That's an example of what I talked about earlier, you know, sharing my failures with the students so that they hopefully will not repeat those failures because that was strictly a moment of, oh, my gosh, here's Bob Carpenter. Oh, my gosh, I don't know who's got the ball. Oh, let me guess. Guess is a cuss word in the play-by-play world. Might as well be. Don't Did you guess. have any conversation with Bob after that game was completed? No, actually, I was in a hole. I actually went into, no, I actually, I, I, I really felt like falling into a storm shelter at that time. No, we, uh, not specifically after that, but we talked many times afterwards. I don't even know if he knew what happened. May not even know to this day. I did. I was so embarrassed. Uh, but those are lessons you learn. I mean, it's, you know, and I, and I knew better. Uh, one thing, you better make sure your depth chart's right. Make sure your charts are right which I think they were. I think I just got caught off guard. I think they had maybe an injured guy that I didn't know about. But even then, you still should know that. If that's your job. But no, we never really talked about it. But boy, I was embarrassed. And, you know, embarrassment's the greatest teacher of all, honestly. I mean, you don't want it to happen very often. You'll be unemployed. But, you know, once you get, you get mortified, I know how I feel. I long to make sure that never happens again. Kind of like the Houston... Uh, eligible man downfield again. Those things happen to you once, at least it was the case for me. You resolve that will never happen again. And you take the steps to correct it and make sure it doesn't. You have a couple signature calls that you're famous for. One of them, every time uh, Oklahoma State scores a touchdown, of course, you say pistols firing. And the other one that I was told uh, by a mutual friend of ours is sometimes you say after a really big play, Good night, Vienna. 
Tell us where both of those came from. Pistols firing was literally an experiment. Uh, second game of the year, played Louisiana Tech my first year here. And, you know, Pistol Pete always, you know, shoots his gun off in Oklahoma State scores a touchdown. So I literally threw it out there to see if it would stick. And I figured if people hated it, they'd say so. And I wouldn't do it anymore, which is kind of naive, I guess, but I did it anyway. And what really led to that becoming popular was the fact that late in that season, the final game, Oklahoma State went to Oklahoma and won. The Sooners were a four-touchdown favorite. If they win that game, they play for the national championship. Oklahoma State went into that game with three wins. And so that was just a uh, a huge moment. And uh, so the thing is, the reason that took off was not the saying or the announcer, but Oklahoma State football was suddenly, from that point forward, starting to enjoy success at a level it had never enjoyed before over a series of years because that moment started everything that's happened in Oklahoma State football that has led to where it is today. And so the timing of it was the big thing. I mean, the timing of it was the big thing in that I didn't know that that OU Bedlam game would be the beginning of the Oklahoma State football renaissance. I mean, you left the booth that day and you hoped it would be, but we had no evidence of that, but it was. And so the whole thing of pistols firing, the reason that's taken off is because Oklahoma State was winning in a way that it's never won before. Had nothing to do with me. None. Still doesn't. It's, that's about Les Miles and Mike Gundy and Rashawn Woods and Kevin Williams, who was nine-time pro bowler after playing defensive tackle here. Guys like Des Bryant and Brandon Whedon, and all those guys that have rolled through here. That's what pistols firing is about. That's why it matters. As I tell people, at the rate Oklahoma State was winning, it was so much fun for people here. I could have called touchdown saying there's a three-legged Billy Goat on Main Street, touchdown Oklahoma State, and I swear that would have taken off. I, I think you might. I think you should try that. Well, I don't know. Three-legged Billy Goats are kind of hard to find around here, so probably better leave that alone. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, so that it, it's all about the players and coaches. We're just messengers and trying to put an exclamation point on stuff. But it's uh, it's been fun to see people get excited about the program and set ticket sales records. I mean, that's what matters. Good night, Vienna. That goes back to my hometown again. There was a guy that ran the gas station about two blocks from where I grew up. His name was Bubba Cannon, and he passed away from cancer. Oh, it's been a couple of years ago. And he was a character. He's a, he's a great athlete, but he was a character. Whenever something was over, he would say, it was good night, Vienna, baby. Well, that was a song by Ringo Starr, but that's what he always said. So I heard this countless times growing up. To illustrate the type of character that this guy Bubba was, when the Steelers and the Pittsburgh, and the Pittsburgh Steelers and Dallas Cowboys played in one of their Super Bowls back in the 70s, a guy came in the gas station. I was in there drinking a strawberry pop. And a guy comes in the gas station and says, well, Bubba, Steelers and Cowboys are playing in the Super Bowl. You hate both teams. Who are you going to root for? Bubba looks up in the cash register, looks at that guy in the eye and says, injuries. That illustrates the kind of guy we're talking about here. He was a character. So in 2002, I'd been back home to do a speech at the church I grew up in, and I'd spent some time with Bubba. And we were playing Kansas that weekend in Lawrence, and the game was in hand for Oklahoma State. 
and they ran a fake punt that got down to the one-yard line. The next play, they, Kansas ran an option play to the near side of the field. They were going to the right. And as the quarterback pitched it, he got blown up, and the ball popped out. And a linebacker named Terrence Robinson scooped it up. And uh, Terrence Robinson was a, you know, was, a, was a pretty darn good linebacker, but uh, he never had an opportunity like that. He scoops it up, and he gets to about midfield, and uh, he's going to score. It's going to be a 99-yard fumble return. And just, I have no idea why I did it. I hadn't thought about it. I just, he got to the 30-yard line, and I just yelled out, good night, Vienna. And, uh, you know, it's just one of those things I just kind of did for fun, and people kind of liked it. And uh, so that's where that started. That was, a, that was a fumble return at Kansas that was right after a trip home, and it was on my mind. And then I'm not, I, I guess... I'm not one that's afraid just to throw things out there. I'm not somebody that uh, I get embarrassed, certainly, but, you know, hey, I, I, this is fun. I want people to enjoy the broadcast. I love what I do. I'm not going to change who I am. Uh, you know, what you see is what you get. I'm kind of an open book. So it's uh, it works here, I guess, and people are good to me and patient. And uh, so uh, I just kind of let it fly. So another question I have for you is you went to one of the more prestigious journalism schools at the University of Missouri where they teach you all the journalistic standards and, and everything that goes along with that. When you're a play-by-play guy, there's certainly a journalistic aspect, but especially when you're a voice of the team, you're really more of an entertainer than a journalist. Do those two uh, sides of the force, so to speak, ever collide with you? Oh, I think they, you know, they can in certain situations. Now, for me, in my role, I don't have to go to work at a radio station every day. I don't have to do, you know, television anchoring work and reporting like my analyst does. And that's what sort of saves that. I tell the students that it's really hard for a major college play-by-play guy, I think, to do a talk show every day because a lot of times you know things that you can't say. And then a fan figure that out where they say, well, you're just an apologist for the team. And so that's really tricky. There are a lot of guys that do it, and I admire them for being able to do it because that's really hard, I think. It's hard to walk that fine line. Our sideline reporter does a talk show every day, Robert Allen, and, you know, he has to cope with that and, and kind of try to navigate that. Oh, I, I think, you know, I think there are times, you know, if you had a day-to-day job as a journalist, I think there, there would be some collision. The thing is, though, all the rules still apply. And when I say the rules, accuracy, credibility, knowing what's going on, being a good reporter, being observant. Obviously, there's a theater of the mind component here that's essential. You know, that is painting the picture, you know, being very descriptive, being uh, able to communicate things uh, in a way that people can enjoy them and understand them. You know, I call it, you know, it's funny, you basically said what I call it in class, infotainment. That's really what play-by-play is. It's it's infotainment. But, you know, at the end of the day, all the same things apply. I mean, sometimes you have to ask that tough question of the head coach in a pregame interview or during a uh, radio call-in show. Uh, You know, you have to feel that out based on the relationship you have with that head coach. Uh, With Mike Bendy, I can do that. Uh, With some other coaches I've worked with, you knew you really couldn't. And, you, and I think the hardest part 
sometimes is the relationship with the head coach is absolutely essential because he's the gatekeeper to the program. So, you know, that relationship in my book trumps just about everything else. Sometimes there are definitely instances where I want to ask him a question about something and maybe probably should, but knowing that that relationship with the head coach is of utmost importance because you're doing TV shows with him, radio call-in shows with him, other things with him, you have to kind of back off. Uh, this is just trust me, that does happen. Sometimes like, hey, I need to ask about this. And then you think, you know what? You can't. So, yeah, there's definitely some of that that happens. But as far as reporting goes, reporting and play-by-play is just like it is in anything else. It's, it's all about accuracy, credibility, homework, delivering timely information that matters when it matters the most. Those, those, things, those things don't change. Finally, I want to wrap up here pretty soon, but I was told that you are pretty good at doing impressions. Oh, I don't know who told you that. Wow. <laughs> and that you do a mean Eddie Sutton and Les Miles impression. Well, my Les Miles is, 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 is really not that good, but Coach Sutton I've been known to do once in a while. Boy, I wonder who told you that. Uh, of course, Coach Sutton, unfortunately, has not been in uh, – in great health recently and you know we're doing our darndest to try to get him into the basketball hall of fame and hopefully that will happen someday but uh oh i like to play around sometimes but i have a lot of respect for both of those coaches and <clears throat> lots of fun to to work with and less is the one that really got things going here at oklahoma state and of course coach Sutton's one of the all-time greats uh i learned so much about basketball going to those practices you know it, it's kind of like if if you're in this business and if you had a really good communications law teacher, you got it drilled into your head that if you really know a subject, you can communicate and explain that subject in just a few sentences, kind of like the brief you'd have to write on a comp law test where you have a paragraph at University of Missouri, Karen List gave you a paragraph to, to, to write the answers on a test, and if you went any longer, it was a zero. That's what Coach Sutton did in basketball. He took a very complicated game and taught it in such a simple way that everybody could digest it. And then he built on those core principles and sort of spread those out to cover all the areas of basketball. And it was awesome to watch. And uh, just hoping that the the powers at BC fit to put him in the Hall of Fame at some point because he absolutely deserves it. Who are your favorite broadcasters to listen to on a night off? Oh, boy. Oh, that's a great question. I'll tell you who I enjoy in baseball, and I love baseball, and I don't really do baseball radio. I do some baseball TV play-by-play. I am a huge fan of uh, John Miller and Dave Fleming doing the San Francisco Giants. Uh, in fact, I've got to know Dave. He's had a lot of our games on TV. I think that whole production is fantastic. I enjoy Pat Hughes that does the Chicago Cubs, so I'll listen to them. And, of course, as a Cardinal fan and someone who grew up listening to John Rooney do University of Missouri sports. I'm a huge John Rooney fan and uh, always have been. As far as college and pro guys go, I mean, anybody in the Big 12, I think we have a great fraternity of announcers in the Big 12 that are really, really good. I, you know, all the guys in our league are fantastic and they all have their own, you know, individual uh, styles that, you know, we're all different. Uh, so, 
yeah, there's lots of guys, but probably the ones I would identify uh, because it, it's more of in a relaxing mode is is baseball, and I'm I'm probably my favorite. I have to admit is that I I think John Miller and Dave Fleming doing the San Francisco Giants are just they're fantastic. They're so good, and the whole production of their broadcasts are really good. In fact, I know they've influenced us. They've I've kind of stolen some things that just just kind of the way that they go about putting the game on the air, we've gone their directions in some ways. What do you do to this day to become a better broadcaster? I think self-awareness is really important. And and when I say that, I spent a lot of time this summer, more than ever, going back and listening to audio and being really, really hypercritical of myself and saying, okay, that, that didn't work. You're talking too much. For crying out loud, will you shut up and let people enjoy the game? I mean, just stop. Just stop. Quit repeating yourself. Stuff like that. And and then just just always being self-aware and evaluating yourself and, and being able to go back and listen to your work and be constructively critical of yourself without, number one, feeling like you're the next Bob Costas because sometimes it can be easy to say, oh, my gosh, that, I'm so good. I'm so good. That was such a good call. That doesn't work. Number two, and it's easy to do this on the flip side, is to say, oh, my gosh, what is wrong with me? I stink. This is terrible. You have to find the middle. You've got to forgive yourself, but you have to be honest with yourself and just be able to go back and listen and be honest and say, hey, correct that. Let's correct that. And I did more of that this summer than I've done before. And so we really kind of, I don't want to say we blew our pregame show up. I just kind of told the guys we had a powwow about a month before the season we had dinner. And we just sat down and I prepared a bunch of audio and a, a lot of handouts. I said, guys, I don't think there's anything wrong with what we're doing. It's kind of like, it's kind of like your house. We haven't cleaned the house in a while. We just need to clean up. We, we, we just got sloppy and, we, we just need to do a good, thorough cleaning. And so that's what we did. We, we, we cleaned up some things, and, and I think our show is a lot better because of it. We changed some things, and we, and we started playing, you know, we, because in my role here, I'm not only doing the play-by-play, but I'm pretty much in charge of all the content and kind of dictates who does what, which is not always the case at the major college level. But, you know, it's, and so we realized, let's put guys in the areas where they're the strongest and kind of change some roles. But, that just goes to the whole thing of self-awareness. I mean, just being able to evaluate yourself and always having a hungry, you know, and I think the biggest thing of all is just having a hunger every day to get better. That's wake up every morning and say, you know what? How can I get better today? And the thing is, that's not only as an announcer, but I always just think of it just as a person, you know, just get up and say, you know what? How can I get better today? How can we have done that better Saturday night at 10? You know, what things did I mess up? You know, now, what could I have done that would have prevented that? Sometimes it's nothing, but sometimes it's a preparation thing. It's like, you know what? Do this. Become more familiar with this. Understand this rule better, whatever. I just think the biggest thing is self-aware. Be able to, to, to be critical of yourself without blowing up your ego or just feeling like you're terrible. And then more importantly, just wake up every day and say, you know what? I'm going to get better today. And if you have that attitude, you know what? You will. 
we will finish things up here. Let everyone know if they wanted to reach out to you, how they would do so. Oh, absolutely. On Twitter, you can reach me at GoPokesVoice. And uh, anybody that wants to reach out, feel free to do so. I enjoy corresponding with people. And, uh, you know, I just, my mother-in-law says I'm just a big kid and live in a fantasy land. And when you work in sports on a college campus, that's pretty much accurate. Because I think you go around in life and you think you're either 22 or 25 every day. So it's quite a blessing, really. Once again, we are visiting with Dave Hunziker. He is the football and men's basketball voice of Oklahoma State University in Stillwater. And Dave, I really appreciate you coming on the show. Oh, it's my pleasure. I hope people enjoyed it. It was uh, it's a lot of fun. And uh, again, I think all of us at work at NIST, just we are so fortunate to do what we do where we get up in the morning and, uh, you know, we, we watch games for a living. That's, 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 a, that's a pretty lucky life. Thank you for tuning in to the Say the Damn Score podcast. Please reach out to the guests that take the time to come on the show. They are a great resource for you, and it's nice to show the guests kind enough to join the show that they are appreciated. Also, please subscribe to the show via iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, the TuneIn app, or the SayTheDamnScore.com email update list. I'm Logan Anderson. Next time you're on the air, make sure to say the damn score a little bit more.